Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year-old tradition of proclaiming God's word, of seeking justice, of resisting tyranny, and of reaching out with compassion to the poor, oppressed, and suffering. Like those who've gone before us, Christians today are called to contribute to the common good. That's why we, as Orthodox, Catholic, and Evangelical Christians, have joined together to make a declaration. We don't agree about everything, but we act together in obedience to the God who's laid total claim on our lives to affirm the sanctity of every human life. Marriage as an institution between one man and one woman and the inherent right of religious freedom for all. My name's Eric Metaxas. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a New Yorker, and I signed the Manhattan Declaration. Hey guys, um, aren't these decorations beautiful? I suspect Kathy was responsible for this. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, despite all these, this beautiful decor and my sweater and even working Christmas into the title, I got to warn you, this is not a Christmas message, as you might expect this time of year. Uh, as you, if you haven't figured it out from the, the, uh, the preface here in the video, uh, in 2009, some heavy thinkers got together and put together a declaration. Um, and in 2010, Lion and Lamb Church did a series on that declaration. Uh, and the purpose of the authors was to provide the church with an anchor. Now you saw the issues that were just mentioned. But obviously they foresaw that the culture was drifting away from a biblical worldview. And they needed to, to put in writing where we stand. And so we decided to have that series, and, and I decided as a capstone for our recent conversations on the cultural issues and how we respond, to go ahead and repeat, you know, revised, updated, and shortened uh, the message that I gave uh, over five years ago on the religious liberty portion of the Declaration. And you have in your handout uh, a rather tight and lengthy statement here. This is only the part that deals with religious liberty. There are other statements within the Declaration on the life issue, on the marriage issue. Uh, and I now, now that I look at it, I, I really don't expect you to read this now, but I pray and I urge you to read it and go on the website, just manhattandeclaration.org, and read the whole declaration for yourself. Because if, as you are called to take a stand, you don't know what your stand is, or you don't know why you believe it, when you are challenged, you will not stand very strongly. We all need to become well-grounded. We say this to our high school students You've got to know not only what you believe, but why you believe it. Uh, so let me go ahead and start here. I'm, just, I'm not going to read this whole thing even though on the handout here, so don't try to follow it. Read it later. Uh, but I do want to say, oh, I want to read, read portions of it so that you can pick up the flavor. The, uh, 
This section starts off with a, uh, the passage from Matthew 22. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. But there's another less familiar passage out of Isaiah 61 that says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, when I first read this, I wonder, how does that relate? But then I started to look at the passage and think about it, and it, it caused me to understand that the Christian life involves purpose, it involves calling, and sometimes non-optional commands from Christ that may conflict with the decrees of Caesar. And so let's get right into this here. Uh, the statement or the declaration says that the early church, the believers in the early church, were determined to follow Jesus faithfully in life and death, and they appealed to the manner in which the incarnation had taken place. And then they quote a second century apology. Did, did God send Christ, as some suppose, as a tyrant brandishing fear and terror? Not so, but in gentleness and meekness. For compulsion is no attribute of God. Thus, the right of, to religious freedom has its foundation in the example of Christ himself and in the very dignity of the human person created in the image of God, a dignity, as our founders proclaimed, inherent in every human and knowable by all in the exercise of right reason. Christians confess that God alone is Lord of the conscience, immunity from religious co coercion is the cornerstone of an unconstrained conscience. No one should be compelled to embrace any religion against his will, nor should persons of faith be forbidden to worship God according to the dictates of conscience or to express freely and publicly their deeply held religious convictions. So the authors of the Manhattan Declaration started at the foundation, the nature of God himself. Uh, unlike Islam, the God of the Bible uses love, reason, and his spirit to draw unbelievers, not coercion. Basic, fundamental truth. Because God desires true and willing obedience from within, not outward compliance born out of coercion or fear. Without the freedom of conscience and religious expression, not only can we be told what to believe, but the power of government becomes unlimited. Uh, the, the declaration goes on there. It says, it is ironic that those who are on the other side of the life issue and the marriage issue are very often at the very vanguard of those who would trample on, upon the freedom of others to express their religious and moral commitments to the sanctity of life and the dignity of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife. Expressions of Christianity that we took for granted uh, less than a decade ago have now come under serious attack. Uh, just a few years ago, a U.S. District Court judge ruled that the National Day of Prayer was an unconstitutional establishment of religion. Thankfully, on appeal, uh, that finding was vacated and the case dismissed. And so the National Day of Prayer survives, at least today. Um, 
But as recently as April of 2015, the New York Times favorably quoted an activist urging that church leaders should be made to take homosexuality off of the sin list. Weeks later, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton said that religious beliefs have to be changed when they conflict with abortion rights. <clears throat> One of the areas in which I've been concerned about uh, over the last few years is in the military. Um, a few years ago, I think in 2010, Franklin Graham, uh, who was an honorary chairman of the National Day of Prayer, was asked to speak at the Pentagon or by the Pentagon for the National Day of Prayer until his statements that Islam is an evil religion came to light. And then he was disinvited as somebody who was inappropriate as a speaker for an open religious service. Some within the military have publicly stated that there is now a culture of fear and hostility in all the branches, particularly to Christian convictions. And this has caused many Christians to avoid going into the military or to avoid re-enlisting once they've been exposed to this. This exodus from the military by Christians will have profound effect on our ability to defend ourselves as a country and the the culture within the military. For example, Air Force Senior Master Sergeant Philip Monk, after 19 years of service, was asked by his commanding officer if he could recognize as discrimination that labeling same-sex marriage is sin. He honestly answered according to his convictions that he could not say what his commanding officer was asking him to say, and therefore he was re reassigned to a much lesser host. Uh, Chaplain Wes Motter, a decorated military veteran with an exemplary 19-year service record, uh, provided chaplaincy services at a high naval command, and just weeks after receiving the highest possible rating and accolades from his commander, a few sailors came in and asked him his opinion on uh, marriage. And he expressed those during counseling sessions, even, uh, and they then complained, these sailors complained, that they didn't like what he said. Uh, Chaplain Motter expressed simply what he, his convictions were according to his Christian faith. The Navy responded by removing Chaplain Motter from his unit and isolating him at the base chapel, cutting him off from his sailors, and forbidding him to minister to their spiritual needs. But the controversy goes well beyond the military. Returning to the uh, declaration, uh, it, re it references the attempt to weaken or eliminate conscience clauses and therefore to pro pro compel pro-life institutions, doctors, nurses, and other health care providers to refer for abortions or in some cases even to perform them. Uh, we also, in the, according to the Declaration, we see this in the anti-discrimination statutes to force religious institutions, businesses, and service providers of various sorts to comply with activities they judge to be deeply immoral or to go out of business. And you've heard the stories of Catholic charities who stopped doing adoptions in foster care because they were forcing them to place within same-sex uh, families. And then there's an, a Methodist institution that was stripped of its state tax exemption uh, because it refused to allow its facilities for same-sex ceremonies. 
California recently passed a law requiring pro-life pregnancy support centers to promote abortions. State of Washington passed a regulation requiring pharmacies to dispense abortifacients, uh, think drugs that cause abortions, regardless of the religious convictions of the owners or the pharmacists. Now, thankfully, a federal court, district court, ruled the state could not force the pharmacist to choose between their professions and their faith. However, that case is on appeal by Planned Parenthood. Uh, a student at Missouri State University had to go to court to win the right to graduate after refusing to lobby for homosexual adoption as a part of a class assignment. However, a student at Augusta State University in their counseling program there was expelled for sharing her beliefs about homosexuality with others and refusing to go through a re-education program designed to change her views. And that expulsion was upheld by the court. A surgical nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital had a written agreement with the hospital that she would not be required to participate in an abortion. But the hospital reneged upon their written agreement and forced her to stand in as a nurse during an abortion, contrary to her convictions. The Colorado State Civil Rights Commission ruled that a baker was guilty of discrimination. Uh, the bakers argued that he was simply using his artistic abilities in concert with his faith. Uh, he did not use his abilities to create hateful, racist, atheistic, vulgar, anti-American, or anti-family messages. He did not discriminate against the individuals who asked him to bake the cake for the same-sex ceremony. He told them he would he gladly bake them anything, any other, uh, any other thing that they desired. This same Civil Rights Commission, uh, just a few months uh, before, had ruled that three Denver bakeries were not guilty of discrimination when they declined to create a cake for a Christian customer who sought a cake that reflected his religious opposition to same-sex marriage. In August of this year, the Colorado Court of Appeals ruled against the baker and ordered the baker and his staff to create cakes for same-sex celebrations. Uh, they also ordered the baker to comply with the Anti-Discrimination Act in the state by re-educating his staff and filing quarterly compliance reports for the next two years. This case is now on appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court. I'm going to ask the worship leaders in here, why would that logic not extend to musicians asked to perform at a same-sex ceremony? Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago, I think in Sunday school, about the story about Kim Davis, the county clerk uh, in Kentucky, who refused to allow her name to be placed on same-sex marriage certificates. But behind that story, I did not know this, is the story of Kentucky Attorney General Jack Conway, who 18 months prior to that incident uh, refused to defend the, the Kentucky constitutional provision defining marriage as one man and one woman before the United States Supreme Court. The governor accommodated the attorney general's request and hired private counsel to defend their law at that taxpayer expense. Then Attorney General Eric Holder praised Attorney General Conway and encouraged other states' attorneys generals to stand on moral principle and to honor their conscience by refusing to do their job of defending their state's laws upholding traditional marriage. Kim Davis stood on the very identical 
precedent set by her own attorney general prior to the Supreme Court's marriage decision when he, too, did not execute the duties of his office. Yet, as you can see, she went to jail without accommodation and praise for standing upon conviction when the shoe was on the other foot. I want to turn to the church now. Um, and uh, a particular incident occurred in 2004. Montana Church hosted a pro-marriage simulcast and allowed volunteers to circulate petitions to place a marriage amendment on the state ballot. Uh, homosexual advocates uh, filed a complaint with the state accusing the church of violating the state law by acting as an incidental political committee. And I got a decision here from the, uh, the judge who decided this case, and it is remarkably insightful. Uh, this is a Judge John T. Noonan who wrote, quote, an unregulated, unregistered press is important to our democracy. So are unregulated, unregistered churches. Churches have played an important, no, an essential part in the democratic life of the United States. Is it necessary, he asked, to evoke historic struggles and the great constitutional benefits won for the country by its churches in order to decide this case of petty bureaucratic harassment? Of course, he's referring to things like slavery and women's rights to vote and, and, and a lot of different issues that the church has been involved with. He concluded, it is necessary. The memory of the memorable battles grows cold. The liberals who applaud their outcomes and live in their light forget the motivation that drove the champions of freedom. They approve religious intervention in the political process selectively. It's great when it's on their side. But in a secular age, freedom of speech is more talismanic than freedom of religion. But the latter is the first freedom in our Bill of Rights. It is in terms of this first freedom, the freedom of the free exercise of religion, that this case should be decided. And thankfully, that case turned out well, as have many others. However, there is a troubling aspect that has pervaded the churches in America over the last 60 years. And that is the very subtle but effective influence of the Internal Revenue Service. You know, we start with the premise that the power to tax is the power to destroy. And so, generally, churches have never been uh, liable for taxes. And that's based upon our First Amendment, which says that Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Let me ask you a question. What if a pastor says, the Bible says this about this particular issue? And then he says, candidate X holds a position very close to the Bible. Candidate Y holds a position that is unbiblical, immoral, and frankly, harmful. My questions for you are, is the pastor, in this case, exercising his constitutional right to freedom of expression and freedom of religion? Question number one. Two, is the pastor simply doing what he ought as a shepherd in labeling, in, in leading his sheep on an important moral issue? And then thirdly, has the pastor violated the word 
or the spirit of the Internal Revenue Code? I would answer those three questions personally as yes, yes, and yes. The history of our freedom from the pulpit, from the founding, pastors have denounced or approved of candidates in their messages based upon moral stands, providing guidance to their flocks. In fact, in 1835, Charles Finney said, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. Politics are a part of a religion in such a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, under the Internal Revenue Code, to maintain tax-exempt status, a church or other exempt organization cannot spend more than somewhere between 5 and 15% of their budget, notice the vagueness, uh, to influence legislation. And that's usually not a problem for most churches. However, what's the effect? Some churches have treated this law as an outright ban on the mention of legislation or somehow have come to the conclusion that once moral issues enter into the political arena, they are no longer subject to God's word. That we, the church, as the pillar and support of God's truth, may not speak to such issues. Let me ask, do politicians and even government officials say and take action based upon moral issues? Should the church treat those moral issues as off-limits? Should the church avoid the connection of the Word of God to the real world, even of politics? Now, my personal belief is that church leaders should not be telling people who to vote for, who they must vote for. Okay. However, informing the church about the position of candidates, and simply telling a church, this is who I'm going to vote for, is in no way coercive. And Beyond that, we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about politics, do we? I mean, after a while, it becomes repetitive. Any more than we would want to spend all of our time you know, on one Bible doctrine. We want the whole Word of God to be taught, and we don't want to focus on any one thing. However, church leaders must inform their bodies on moral issues and how actions of political leaders either follow or deviate from moral principle. And churches that shy away from that responsibility, I believe, are failing their biblical duty to speak the truth to the flock and are denying the application of God's truth to a part of our existence that affects our lives and our culture. Now, back to the IRS. Uh, For its part... It has wisely avoided court review of the constitutionality of its code and its actions. In other words, they issue vague guidelines for churches to try to follow, uh, but they won't take anybody to court. Um, After 60 years of their interpretation, there is no reported situation to date where a church has lost its tax-exempt status or been directly punished for sermons delivered from the pulpit. In 2009, uh, the IRS took action against a pastor in Minnesota who endorsed a congressional candidate. But that move led to a challenge to the IRS's uh, audit procedure for churches, 
which the IRS lost. And since then, there have been no publicly known examples of the IRS taking action against churches. Why? Well, it seems the IRS understands that the restrictions within their code are unconstitutional infringements of free exercise and free speech. So why put that in front of a judge to rule that way? When the existence of the law has the exact effect that they desire. Now, the Alliance Defending Freedom is attempting to force the issue by asking pastors to send copies of their sermons addressing elections to the IRS and asking them to sue. I'm not sure whether they'll ever take up that offer. But let's get back to the church. A simple question to churches that are silent on this issue. Is there any facet of life that God's Word does not address and that we should not address within our bodies? Any. Does the Bible leave out any part of life? Let me go back to the declaration here where, they, where the authors say, we view this trend as an ominous development, not only because of its threat to the individual liberty guaranteed to every person, regardless of his or her faith, but because the trend also threatens the common welfare and the culture of freedom on which our system of republican government is founded. So these restrictions on freedom of conscience and these, these actions taken by government can result in a thing called soft depotism. Now, depotism is the exercise of absolute power, especially in a cruel and oppressive way. Soft depotism is an historical reference to what really is happening in the United States and other nations today. Uh, you see, soft depotism involves a promise by officials to use the, the power of the state and its taxation for either welfare or for the benefit of large corporations to give them what they want. The softness comes in in the voluntary surrender of liberty and independence and the tendency to look habitually to the government for their needs. It was put this way by one author, the will of man is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act, but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy, but it prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, but it's it, it compresses, innervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. Now, since we gave this message in 2010, some of the issues have changed, but it does seem that the world is much more complex. If you haven't noticed, racial tensions have risen to a level that we have not seen since the 1970s. College students are using their rights of free speech and assembly to demand that others not have the right of free speech when their speech offends the college students. And administrators are giving in. About half of the adults in this country do not pay taxes and instead receive benefits 
paid by the other half. We have an executive branch that seems unaccountable, which ignores the balance of powers. We had five people on our Supreme Court set aside a definition of marriage that has been standing for several millennia, all based on the experience, the social experimentation of a couple of decades at most. And our elected representative Congress in Congress seemed to have done little, if anything, to stem the tide. All this without swords, armies, or totalitarian regimes, just the debilitating and tranquilizing effects of soft depotism. If you paid attention to the news, you know that uh, the world is, not, is no longer safe. And when the threat of terrorism is great enough, we will lose further rights and further freedoms still just to survive. Let me finish up here on the Declaration. As Christians, we take seriously the biblical admonition to respect and obey those in authority. We believe in law and in the rule of law. We recognize the duty to comply with laws, whether we happen to like them or not, unless the laws are gravely unjust or require those subject to them to do something unjust or otherwise immoral. The biblical purpose of law is to preserve order and serve justice and the common good. Yet laws that are unjust, and especially laws that purport to compel citizens to do what is unjust, undermine the common good rather than serve it. There's a discussion there on your sheet about uh, civil disobedience, which we talked about in Sunday school some, uh, just the last few weeks. We're not going to recover that today. But the end, the last paragraph of the Declaration, I think, is a significant call. Um, it's a call to Bible-following Christians to take a stand. And you might want to take a look at this. Last paragraph. Because we honor justice and the common good, we will not comply with any edict that purports to compel our institutions to participate in abortions, embryo-destructive research, assisted suicide and euthanasia, or any other anti-life act. Nor will we bend to any rule purporting to force us to bless immoral sexual partnerships, treat them as marriages or the equivalent, or refrain from proclaiming the truth as we know it about morality and immorality and marriage in the family. We will fully and ungrudgingly render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But under no circumstances will we render to Caesar what is God's. The reason we talked about this today is because this is important. We've got to maintain an anchor or we will simply drift in the waves of the culture. And I, I, I may be preaching to the choir here. I understand that. But we have to know why we believe what we believe. So I urge you to not only read this handout, read the whole declaration, familiar yourselves with the concepts in there. You've got to be able to do that because when you're challenged, you need to know not only how to answer, but how not to be deceived yourselves. So please take it seriously. I'm, I want to close with a passage from Acts. 
And this is when Peter and the apostles were brought before the council. And the high priest questioned them. Verse 28, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And that's why we're here today. Do our convictions that we read about and talk about here in this church, have they taken root? And do we understand that really we have nothing to worry about? We can live these convictions without fear. The worst that can happen is they can kill us. And then we get to spend eternity with him. Lord God, we give you all praise. And we thank you for the freedoms that we have experienced as a nation unlike almost any other nation. We thank you, Father, for the believers who have been persecuted and sometimes even gone to their death because of their convictions. And that's happening right now in other lands. Father, we pray that whatever happens, we would keep our focus on you. That we would remember as we take the Lord's table today, that it is only because of you that we have anything. And it's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have the promise of eternal life with you. Thank you, Father, for your love and for the convictions that you give us. Help us to remain strong and steadfast as we stand for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.